Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Master Historian Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Exeter. He is without a doubt the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today. And today we are discussing one of his newest books, A Brief History of the Pacific, The Great Ocean, published by Robinson. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, why did you write this book? A, I was very interested at the prospect of doing so. And B, it's part of a sequence. I already, in my books on uh, oceans and seas, have done the Mediterranean, the Caribbean, and the Atlantic. And the Pacific, as you say, is the great ocean, totally different in scale to any others, uh, but also actually much more complex uh, as one to, to, to write about. So that, that I found very interesting. Can you actually delve a little bit more into that in terms of differentiation between looking at the Pacific and looking at the Atlantic, which you've already written in a book about? Yes. Well, in the case of the Atlantic, uh, I mean, obviously not just that the scale is different, uh, but there's also the possibility much more readily of offering a narrative of convergence. And you can do that as soon as you've got the... um, Hispanic presence in the New World from the very end of the 15th century. You've got the big demographic movements of uh, Europeans and also of Africans, uh, enslaved Africans, uh, to the New World. Um, And that's very, very different to the Pacific. In the case of the Pacific, there were obviously links, um, but links prior to the um, 18th and even more 19th century are much more limited and indirect. And there's also the conceptual question, as one Fijian academic pointed out, there's a difference between the Pacific as islands in a far sea, and on the other hand, a sea of islands. But from my point of view, I not only wanted to write, and the same is true of the pattern of the earlier books, a history of the oceans and the islands within it, places like Fiji or the Hawaiian archipelago, but also where pertinent, a history of the oceanic littoral, because the history of the of the Pacific is a history of Lima, Vera Cruz, um, and Manila, as much as it is a history of the Hawaiian archipelago. Now, that approach is one, of course, that some people are happy to accept and others don't. I mean, I found this with my history of the Caribbean, in which I wrote quite extensively um, about... Um, Uh, New Orleans, for example, Louisiana and Florida, and people weren't always happy. So in the case of the Pacific, I I should have said, of course, Acapulco, not Veracruz, but in the case of the Pacific, the Manila galleon that went from Acapulco to Manila um, tells you both about the possibilities from the late 16th century of sailing across the Pacific, uh, tells you about the aspirations of Spanish power, but also tells you about the nature of the societies and economic economies on each side of you know the Spanish presence in Mexico, uh, civil, civil silver producing, of course, and the Spanish presence in part, not all, of the Philippines. Is that what you mean by, quote, the cultural challenge of the Pacific, unquote? 
Yes, I think there is a cultural challenge. I think that it is both, and an intellectual challenge. It's a cultural challenge because it is so many disparate societies which had very little to do with each other until comparatively late. And it's an intellectual challenge, um, conceptually and methodologically, as to how you address that if you're writing what you want to have as an accessible book. And the book is, you know, comes in at about 260 pages. And you know, I, I so happen to think it's accessible, but obviously you have to decide how to make it accessible when you've got such an enormity of, of scale to, to confront. Now, what is the timeline of the Polynesian migration in the Pacific? Well, I've got an entire chapter, as you know, I moved from the introduction when I'm looking at the um, physicality of the ocean, currents, um, geology, animals, and we then move to the, what I call the indigenous world. And we've certainly got Polynesian society emerging from about 1000 CE. So, you know, let's face it, they're, they're not using Western um, um, sort of chronology, chronology in Fiji, Tonga and Samoa. So that's fairly centrally in. As you know, and as I discuss in the book, there are different movements into the Pacific world. And particularly if you're going to see, as in my view, you should see uh, New Guinea, for example, as part of the Pacific, um, you've got a much, much, much longer time scale. So um, the, the New Guinea, Australia, Tasmania possibly were settled up to 60,000 years ago. It's generally argued the Sydney area was settled about 40 to 45,000 years ago. But you're looking much more recently, you know, genetic sequencing has uh, enabled, which I discuss in the book, has enabled um, um, a sort of an, an attempt, a reasonably good attempt to understand the settlement, settlement pattern in terms of individual generations. So it shows that we've got um, movement, for example, within the last millennium to the South Marquesas in about 1140, to the North Marquesas, that's the in French Polynesia, by the way, in, in about 1130, and so on and so forth. Uh, Easter Island, Rapa Nui, uh, about 1210. Um, so, and all of these we're talking about CE or AD, although it's also worth bearing in mind that some of the um, uh, scientific evidence can suggest, as with the settlement of Easter Island, you know, pollen evidence or linguistic evidence can, can be used to argue for different dates. So a lot of these are provisional. We don't have the equivalent of the Norse sagas to help us and the archaeology, more modern archaeology, to, um, to help us uh, look at the, with, with the um, settlement of uh, Iceland, Greenland and Labrador. Um, I mean, I can go on. I mean, the Hawaiian group reached in about um, 400 CE. But again, um, you've got problems of radiocarbon dating not necessarily matching um, evidence that you might get from other sources. Now, how plausible is the idea uh, that there was a Polynesian exploration and or migration to the Western Hemisphere? And if so, when did it occur? Well, again, I discussed that at... Um, 
some length. It's certainly true that ancient DNA of the Amerindians from what is now Colombia in South America has been found uh, in the Polynesians from the Marquesas, which suggests direct human interchange and sex between these two regions about a thousand years ago. And that's the strongest piece of evidence um, for interhemispheric exchange. But I think it's worth bearing in mind, I do discuss this, there's no Polynesian objects and settlements have been yet found in the Americas that are analogous to the Norse objects and settlements in Labrador and vice versa. On the other hand, you know, and it's always one another, um, you know, there's sweet potato in archaeological um, deposits. Um, yet, if you're going to assume the Polynesian voyagers, uh, who were skilled and, advent- and adventurous, um, in my mind, why would they stop at Easter Island? Why wouldn't they go on and venture, however briefly, to South America, or for that matter, stop at the Chatham Islands, uh, rather than going on to Australia when they've already sailed so far? So the migrations and the navigation that go with them are, you know, I discussed these, um, faced considerable difficulties. I mean, navigation was an issue for the Polynesians. There was a need to find often infrequent islands in the vast ocean. And as you will be aware, visibility from their very low boats was limited by the lack of height. So that affects the ability to see over the curvature of the Earth. But, you know, the Polynesians presumably used trial, uh, trial and success methods. They, it's assumed they followed particular winds and currents, that they developed an understanding of the currents. They developed an understanding of star sequences on the horizon, of following uh, bird life and also weather conditions because clouds would build up, you know, hot air rises over uh, land masses. So, you know, they probably could navigate a considerable distance and they might well have uh, visited America uh, and the Americas and had some contact but one has to say it was slight compared to um, the Polynesian settlement on the in the Pacific Islands. How important was military conflict uh, to Pacific Ocean societies? Uh, I assume you mean here pre-contact, you know, societies, in other words, native societies. I would say very important. I mean, if you've been to Hawaii, you will know that um, there's quite a lot of uh, material there. Um, You can also see in other island groups, um, Samoa, the Tahitian group, um, you can see stone um, walls, protective ditches. Um, You can see uh, cults such as in the Tahitian archipelago, the god of fertility was also the god of war, Oro, and he received offerings of dead men. Um, There seems to have been rival, slaughtered men, I mean, in that context. There seemed to have been conflicts caused by overpopulation, with rival clans competing over farming areas. The defeated could expect slaughter and the destruction of their traditional temples. And um, European settlers, sorry, European explorers, I should say, 
um, uh, in the late 18th century overlapped with these conflicts. So the clan war of 1768 in Tahiti was recorded, and it was a war over who should be paramount chief, and it led to a genocide for the defeated and a, a wall of skulls built for, for by the victor. Similarly, conflict among the Maori in New Zealand, um, similarly the unification of the Hawaiian archipelago in the early 19th century. So all of these, um, I think it's fair to say, suggest a very high level of violence and the idea of a sort of primitive peacefulness can be uh, queried. And of course, um, you can take that further uh, by looking at some of the uh, literal areas, the um, you know the, in Japan, for example, war dances, um, priestly incantations celebrating the power of gods and ancestors, the warrior character of Shinto. Um, I mean, it, it's I think very naive to suggest that these were in some way peaceful islands and peaceful groups until the um, the Europeans turned up. What explains the fact that other than Japan and China, state formation was re was retarded in most Pacific Ocean societies? Well, that's a very interesting question. I, I mean, I think in the case of... Um, I think we have to be careful about what we mean by retarded in the sense that clan or tribal identities and are, are not necessarily too different from what you might see as... State, state formation in modern sub-Saharan Africa. So I think one has to be cautious here, and one has to be cautious about taking a developmental model. It's certainly partly a matter of scale. Uh, so in actually the, the population of um, uh, island groups in the central and southern Pacific would not have permitted a developed state uh, pattern on, shall we say, that of Japan, let alone China. Um, I think it's fair to say that if you look at the um, eastern littoral of the Pacific, you do have pre-conquest um, societies, and we're here, including pre the Aztecs and pre the Incas, um, which had a degree of uh, sophistication and a degree of organization. Um, but you're absolutely right that um, there isn't anything that equates with Japan, You're absolutely, let alone China. Why was Japan's success in the second half of the 13th century in thwarting the Mongol invasions, quote, a key episode in Pacific history, unquote? Yes, I think it is a key episode. I think the um, the uh, Kublai Khan, the um, the uh, Chinese emperor, the grandson of Genghis Khan, uh, tries to uh, um, invade uh, Japan or have Japan invaded um, as part of, as it were, the establishment of a syncretic military system. So it's Mongols, Koreans and the old Song Navy of southern China, and formidable numbers of troops. I mean, we're probably over 140,000, maybe significantly more than that. And he makes um, 
uh, to um, invasion attempts. I mean, in part thwarted by the weather, in part thwarted by the strength of the resistance, um, in part thwarted by the difficulty of actually mounting a successful large-scale amphibious operation against defenders. And, you know, I think that in a way one can see comparisons there <clears throat> with, for example, um, the difficulty in the Spanish Armada encountered in 1588. Um, uh, there was also just poor execution. Um, it proved very difficult to coordinate these very large forces. But as you correctly say, it was a key moment in Pacific history. It also reminds us that Pacific history is not just, and, and the external pressure in Pacific history is not just a narrative set in terms of Western pressure. Uh, whether you think that's good and bad, and you know, as you will know, this is—it's necessary to underline this because for so many people, misguidedly, their approach to global history is to see it as a narrative in which the West, Westernization, and capitalism are all crimes, um, as in, for example, discussion of slavery, and to ignore the extent to which there was a multiplicity of initiating powers and forces and tendencies and that world history is about their interaction and that the uh, success of western powers was always more tentative precarious and contingent and time limited um, than people tend to be aware of so slavery in the atlantic world would not have been able to operate without the africans being willing to uh, enslave each other and sell vast numbers of them to European traders. In the case of the Pacific, um, I think it's fair to say that the European presence, although it begins with Magellan's circumnavigation, or he doesn't actually manage, he gets killed in the Philippines, but the circumnavigation of his voyage in the beginning of the 16th century, I think it's fair to say that the European presence is considerably more limited and tentative um, until one gets into the 19th century. Why did Manchu China not expand into the Pacific, particularly in light of the considerable Chinese diaspora throughout the area? Well, I think that, that again, is a fascinating question. And of course, like everything, trying to explain something that doesn't happen is methodolo methodologically difficult, um, not least because we don't have policy papers to explain why individual powerful emperors like the Kangxi Emperor or the Quinbong Emperor didn't do this. I think what I would say is this. The period of greatest Manchu military assertiveness is the late 17th and 18th century. In that period, and particularly the two reigns I've already referred to, in that period, the principal challenge to China are the Dzungar Confederation, uh, based in modern Sinkien, and as it were, fighting it out with the Chinese for dominance over both what we would call Mongolia and what we would call Tibet. And that conflict wasn't finished till the end of the 1750s. Thereafter, the uh, Manchu were most concerned with activities and expansionism and, if you like, buffer stabilization on their land borders, uh, particularly vis-a-vis -vis Nepal in the 1790s, Burma in the 1760s, and Vietnam in the 1780s, and just as they'd earlier been concerned about the Russians in the Amur Valley in the 1680s. Now, what this didn't leave much time for is concern with the naval power projection. But on top of that, 
The Manchu themselves derived from a, if you like, they were a horseman society uh, and a horsed elite. Uh, they didn't uh, see themselves in maritime roles at all. I think that's very important. Um, and also, I think it's worth saying that if you're looking at the period uh, as you know, they took over in the 1640s and 1650s. If you're looking at the period from then till the um, uh, the first Opium War, so-called, in the 1830s, European pressure on, and maritime pressure on China is limited. Um, and if anything, it's going the other way. I mean, the Chinese, for example, managed to drive the Dutch from ta Taiwan, or as it was then called, at Formosa, um, there isn't, as it were, a threat to them. Earlier 16th century, vague Spanish ideas that they would in some way be able to conquer China, always ridiculous, had got nowhere. The deployment of Portuguese warships in Chinese waters in the 1520s near Macau had ended up not being sustained. The um, naval conflict off Korea with the Japanese in the 1590s had ended with the Japanese abandoning their attempts to conquer Korea. So there was no needs-based uh, Manchu expansionism in the Pacific, whereas there was a needs-based Manchu activity to try and stabilize their land frontiers, as well as being a, one that conformed with their social politics. And I think those approaches are actually helpful in trying to understand um, the Manchu. And on top of that, if you were a Manchu ruler, let's say, you know, the Qinglong ruler who experiences the McCartney mission by the British in the 1790s, you know, the, the British thought that this was an attempt at mutuality. As far as you're concerned, if you're a Chinese emperor, the exact opposite here are foreigners bringing you presents, a kind of tribute. Um, they want to trade with you at Guangzhou, uh, Canton, and or Macau, and what they want to do is to bring you silver and to take away your products, uh, tea or silks or ceramics. Not exactly, um, as it were, much of a problem. In fact, the exact opposite part of a tradition of sort of uh, lesser people, lesser rulers trying to, you know, appropriate you, which is how the Chinese tended to see their world. And what about the Tokugawa Bakufu? Why did they not um, expand or endeavor to expand or try to expand uh, after the second quarter of the 17th century? Yes, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, Japan had only very limited expansionism. I've mentioned in the book, um, it takes over, of course, the uh, Ruku Kingdom, you know, the Okinawa archipelago, takes over, in fact, the Bonin Islands as well, from what I recall, uh, but really doesn't do very much. And the Japanese are, in a sense, are not expansionist in this period. And again, one shouldn't see this as a failure. I mean, it's very interesting, this. If one's taking a sort of political Darwinianism approach, you know, nations expand or they fail, which was an approach that was taken by the late 19th century, which is, I've discussed in my books on geopolitics, then you could see that position being taken. But that was not how the Japanese saw themselves. And they were much more concerned with 
internal stability. Um, their principal attempt to stabilize uh, and linked to this as expansionism was taking over the Northern Ireland, Hokkaido, from the native Ainu people, who incidentally, in some respects, that's a equivalent would be the wrong word, but it has interesting parallels with what happened in parts of Polynesia uh, and also further north with the Russians in Sakhalin, for example, and Kamchatka. Um, but there was no attempt to devote that sort of energy further afield. And the Japanese, who'd had, in a sense, an inshore coastal navy for their invasion of Korea in the, the two invasions, I should say, uh, by Hideyoshi in the 1590s, they wind down that naval power. And again, that might surprise us. But again, I'm not sure one should necessarily see military history is concerned with the optimization of, of military force. Why do you title chapter six of the book, The Age of Cook? Well, I wanted to write about Cook. I mean, obviously, most of the native population had never heard of Cook, um, but it does represent. Uh, he is rep he is a figure uh, that I think is really interesting in terms of his explorations, in terms of his ability to see. Um, the Pacific as a whole, uh, in terms of the significance of British exploration, uh, you know, so it's not just Cook at that time, um, and in terms of the fact that after the British capture of Manila in 1762, you were very much got, I mean, obviously the British didn't um, go on, they gave back Manila, uh, but the, the British are increasingly a territorial presence, most clearly, of course, uh, with the establishment of their first first permanent base in uh, Australia in 1788, from which uh, they, were, they were to go further out. So I think it represents a new trend in, um, uh, in um, both world history and Pacific history. And interestingly enough, Edward Gibbon in his History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which was not generally a book that commented on the present day, um, actually referred, and this is not just Cook, these are other voyages, to the five great voyages successively undertaken by the command of his present majesty, that's George III, um, with the sense that this was a civilizational advance. Now, it might not have seemed a civilizational advance to native uh, Pacific people, but uh, in the Western sense, the dark side of the world, almost literally the dark side of the world, uh, was being, in their terms, discovered. I mean, we would refer instead to explored. Why did Imperial Russia not continue south from Alaska into Northern California in the second quarter of the 19th century? Yes, again, I mean, that's a very interesting question. As you know, and as I discuss in the book, uh, the Russians moved first into the Aleutian Islands, then into mainland Alaska, and they moved down uh, the western seaboard um, uh, of, of well, what is now California, establishing uh, Fort Ross, uh, in 1812, and the Russians also take an interest in trying to develop um, a presence in the ocean itself, on the, particularly in the Russian traders trying to establish um, a presence in Hawaii. Why? Well, I think it's partly because um, this was the very extreme limit of Russian power, 
their concerns and the concerns of a state whose capital was St. Petersburg were much more um, European. Uh, other than European, they were uh, in terms of expansion in against the lands of Islam. Um, the after the uh, they'd been driven out of the Amur Valley in the 1680s, they then don't move against China and the next territory till 15 sorry 1858 to 1860. So I think um, there's this sense of being on the limit. Uh, rather analogous to the Vikings in Labrador. And then at that point, um, there's the, obviously it's a, a fur hunting um, colony. Um, so, you know, the over hunting of sea otters is a problem. Uh, the presence of, and the growing presence of the British and the Americans on the um, Pacific seaboard is an issue. And there just are not enough Russians to um, to sustain um, the presence there of of their settlement. Why did Tsarist Russia sell Alaska in 1867? And would Pacific history have been any different if Russia had not sold it? Well, that's again a fascinating question. Um, I think first of all, there were only two thousand white settlers at the time. The the financing of the uh, the Russian American company, which in effect ran Alaska, uh, was close to bankruptcy. So uh, economically, it was a poor prospect. Um, the Americans also had been wooed by the Russians during the Crimean War, um, and wooed again during the the Union had been wooed during the American Civil War. So this appeared to be a way to um, uh, cement those relations. It was also there was anxiety in the Russian case in the event of another conflict with Britain. Uh, Alaska would all easily fall to the British. Um, so I don't think it's really a surprise. And again, it's part of a consolidation. At this point, uh, the Russians are developing their presence in the Northwest Pacific. Um, they founded Vladivostok as a naval base in uh, 1860. Um, and I think that that, they realize, is a more sustainable presence. And they're interested, of course, in uh, the, their developing concerns in Manchuria. And if you look elsewhere, I mean, they've taken over northern Sakhalin in 1853. They go on to take over southern Sakhalin in 1875. This appears to be... Um, much more important to them um, um, than, uh, and the China question as a whole, much more important than, to them than, than Alaska. Why was Meiji Japan successful in modernizing, unlike Manchu China? Well, I think, um, first of all, it starts earlier. Second of all, there is civil conflict in there. There's resistance, as you know, the um, Satsuma rising, for example. But the resistance is far more rapidly overcome, whereas China has the in, uh, appalling, as it were, disaster of the largest war in, this, in the 19th century, the Taiping rising. By the way, can I underline that it's the largest war of the 19th century? There is an enormous amount of very poor general military history which consistently underplays 
uh, East Asia. And, you know, people endlessly wobble on about wars within the West and don't look at comparisons or the role of conflict further afield. Um, I think also that in the case of China, um, the quality of leadership is of coherent leadership is not brilliant in the sense that there are some provincial governors who are very interested in reform and some of them uh, push in the so-called self-strengthening movement, which is a very important development. But that's more at that level rather than the, the country as a whole, whereas the Magi restoration, I think, is significant because it's more um, for the country as a whole. And, of course, the technology available from the West, um, uh, steamships, railways, proves, one, that the Japanese are willing to embrace without them seeing it as, uh, once the Meiji are back, of course, without them seeing it as a a fundamental challenge to their uh, society and culture. How did the Great War impact the Pacific region? Well, I think the Great War is very interesting in the Pacific region. I think, obviously, first of all, the, the Germans get kicked out, and there's relatively little fighting. And uh, uh, But what it does do is it underlines more immediately um, the growing uh, maturity as independent power systems of of Australia and New Zealand, both of whom uh, become more important in the um, uh, territorial settlements of German New Guinea, including the Bismarck Archipelago, is handled handed to Australia. Um, Nauru goes to Australia and New Zealand, um, uh, German Samoa to New Zealand, etc., etc. So that's significant. Um, the ocean becomes more under the influence of Britain, but there's also a greater power for Japan, which had played a role in um, uh, joining with the British and taking the uh, German base in China. Um, and the Japanese had also taken the islands in the northwest uh, Pacific, what we would call the Carolines and the Marianas. And these um, are become part of the Japanese mandate, the German possessions north of the equator. And lastly, although there is not a territorial gain, um, the extent to which the war sees a partial exhaustion of Britain um, contributes to the way in which America is more significant. And America, remember, uh, as a result of the defeat of um, uh, Spain in the War of 1898, and also as a result of the suppression of the Filipino resistance, nationalist resistance, is the imperial power in the Philippines, it's the imperial power in Guam, it's already the imperial power in Hawaii, um, as well as a host of other lesser Um, um, islands and of course it's the imperial power in Alaska on the way and in you know California and the Pacific Northwest and the Pacific Canal sorry the Panama Canal has been completed in 1914 so I think you can fairly say that although World War One is not ordinarily seen as the basis of American power, um, it is actually significant, and it's worth thinking about that. And during the war, in fact, the Americans continued the consolidation 
of their position in uh, the Philippines. So in 1915, they took over the Sultanate of Sulu in the Philippines. Um, and, and their navy also uh, becomes significantly more important, both in absolute and relative terms. I mean, America had been the third naval power after Britain and Germany. The destruction of the German navy means that America, by 1918, is the second naval power in the world. Why was it the case that, quote, more than any other navy, the Americans got the war they expected in the 1940s, unquote. Um, <clears throat> well, the Americans had been planning from um, way back, but consistently um, um, with war, war exercises from the 20s for conflict with Japan. And they'd been configuring their navy with units, uh, long-range units, um, uh, with large um, uh, capacity to take um, coal and such like, and long-range submarines. Uh, um, so, for example, the P-boats of the mid-30s had totally diesel-electric propulsion. And so they've got long-range um, warships and Angsit were, the geopolitics is what is anticipated, whereas the British, for example, face the unexpected nature of the German takeover of um, Norway and France in 1940 and all the pressure that arises from that, plus the combination of fighting by the end of 41, Germany, Italy and um, uh, the the um, the Japanese. Um, so the Japanese and the Americans, on the other hand, slug it out as they had anticipated slugging it out. Why was Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor a case of what you characterize as quote tactical operational success and strategic failure unquote? Yes. I mean, that's a dichotomy I've tried to look at in my books on World War II, notably my book on strategy in World War II. And I think too many commentators focus on something that might be uh, operationally successful or technically adroit and effective, such as classically German war making, which is described in terms of the Blitzkrieg, and ignore the extent to which there's often a strategic failure. So the strategic failure is a quite obvious one, um, that they um, they provoked a war with uh, the United States, which was not necessary. I mean, if what Japan wanted to do was um, exploit the weakness of the British, French and Dutch in Southeast Asia, they didn't actually need to fight the Americans. Conversely, if what the army wanted to do was to capture more of China, uh, or indeed to confront the Soviet Union. They didn't need to fight the Americans. So it was an unnecessary war. Um, and um, on top of that, it was based on a very flawed assessment of American uh, public opinion that the Americans would be sufficiently influenced by uh, Japanese uh, success, shock and horror, shock and awe, that they would sort of agree that they would lack the will to fight and would agree uh, Japanese uh, war goals. And you know, I think that was a, a deeply flawed strategic assessment. Do you agree with Paul Kennedy's thesis in his latest book that it was the American productive capability that decided the war in the Pacific? 
I think it's important, but, you know, I've reviewed Paul. I like Paul a lot. He's a great scholar. But as you will know, I've reviewed him over the years. I wrote a, a book which was a very different one to him on the rise and fall of the great powers. No, I don't. I think he's gone for a single interpretation. I think he uh, underplays... Um, in that, or partly the way his work is presented, because uh, he's actually cleverer than you know than than some of the reviewers and some of the blurb writers. Um, but you know, I think you have to accept there's a multiplicity of factors that make for military success, including. Uh, determination, um, including unit cohesion, tactical adroitness, operational skill, strategic understanding, the ability to prioritize, the ability to use weapons. Um, all of those are very, very important. And of course, we know we've come across enough conflicts in more recent times in which the technologically and resource richer a state or power or alliance has not prevailed. I mean, we're not discussing here the inevitability of how resources explain why the Americans were bound to beat the Taliban or the North Vietnamese. No, it's uh, if you're going to take a resource-based interpretation, I mean, I think it, you do not really understand military history. What you can do, and I think he does very valuably in this excellent recent book, which for the benefit of listeners is also very handsomely illustrated, um, what I think he does do is show the significance of ship numbers, and I think that is very important. Um, it is something that enables both the British and the Americans uh, to fight in a number of different spheres. But I don't think it makes the outcomes inevitable. And, you know, you look at a battle like Midway in 42 or Lady Gulf on 44, and I don't think inevitability is what people who've looked at those, uh, those battles are going to are suggesting. How important was the Pacific to American Cold War strategy? Well, I think the Pacific was important. I think too often we write about the Cold War in terms of the war in Europe, Cold War in Europe, and we have a German interpretation of it. I don't think that's very helpful. I think what I would say is that the Pacific has been, um, and particularly the East Asian area, has been highly unstable since the um, 1850s with elements such as Chinese div divisiveness, Japanese change, Russian expansion, growing American interest. And that went straight on through. And the Cold War saw an accentuation of that with direct American presence in Korea and Vietnam and guarantee to Taiwan and military bases in Japan, all part and parcel of that. <clears throat> Whereas some other parts of the world, um, the World War II presence was not sustained um, or not sustained in that fashion. So I think the Cold War is important. And of course, it's where America confronted both China and the Soviet Union, which was not the case, of course, in Europe. What are the geopolitics of the Pacific in the post-Cold War period? Well, I think the geopolitics have changed somewhat with 
not just so much the rise of China, because that was actually, you know, in a sense, the idea of a China-America uh, entente was very important from the 1970s onwards. I think it's the deterioration in American-Chinese relations, and I think that's the most important strategic development since the uh, beginning of the 2000s, far more significant than the interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think because of that, the United States is in comparatively terms a weaker position than it was between the 1970s and the 2000s, when the effect of aligning with China was to weaken the Soviet Union. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History a podcast channel New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black, very much. Thank you, and I hope readers will enjoy the book because it's not only political and military, it also looks at cultural, social and economic and environmental trends. Thank you.